Welcome to the In My Beach Boys Room podcast. I am Adam Schreiner. I am your casual Beach Boys fan here with Matthew Hartz, Beach Boys expert, enthusiast, and uh, nut, really. He's our Beach Boys yes, house, nut. Beach Boys nut. This is his uh, room, rooms, basement, whatever you want to... Sanctuary. Sanctuary. There, there Rehabilitation you facility. There you <laughs> All right, before we get into the, the real meat and the potatoes of this here podcast, we got to do our social media drops. So if you want to follow the podcast or Matthew Hearts, you can go to Instagram and that's just Matthew Hearts Music or Twitter at Matthew underscore Hearts. That's at Matthew underscore Hearts. I think we have some abandoned Matt Hearts Twitter accounts out there that look similar, but <laughs> we can't get to those. And it's so. H-A-R-T-Z, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, your, oh, wow. it's, your, it's okay. your logo. <laughs> oh, it is? Okay, well then, uh, you know, yeah. Just, sometimes emails get lost these days, you know? <laughs> yeah, okay. Sorry, guys. <laughs> just Matthew underscore hearts for Twitter. And then we got our Patreon page going. If you want to support the podcast, just go on over to Patreon. You can either uh, search in the, the little search bar, Matthew Hearts, or in my Beach Boys room. Either one will we'll get you there. And then you can uh, start supporting the podcast. And we really appreciate you, first of all, listening, and then let alone if you make it all the way to, uh, to, to the Patreon page. So one other thing is we've been actually working on MatthewHeartsMusic.com. And it's up right now, and we have some video lessons that, you know, Matthew, not only is he a world champion fiddle player, violin player, but you play guitar, a bunch of string instruments, guitar, yeah, you play mandolin. The- yeah, and yeah. and bass and other associated instruments with that. A little bit of banjo, different types of banjos and different types of guitars, right? And a little bit of keyboard, um, you know. But basically, the website is is going to be devoted to building a musician. The way I really think, after all these years, really getting somebody started organically. It's really fun. We, we're right now. We're working primarily on violin and guitar videos, and then some keyboard stuff with some theory modules we're working on. Uh, but it's just going to grow and grow and grow, and yeah. we're going to have supplemental material on there. We're going to have a, a lot of sta- standard notation for some stuff, and not uh, not some standard notation or tab for some stuff because. Some and of the stuff is part of the process, yes, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and that's not ready yet, but it will be. And and so you can, if you are interested, drop your email in the little email box. And as soon as we launch that teaching aspect of it, uh, well, you'll get an email and that'll let you know, and then you can hop right on. But you know, we're working really hard on getting that done for you quickly here. So, let's get back to the podcast. But let's talk about the podcast in general first. When when Matthew and I we're kind of brainstorming this podcast, you know, we, we thought about maybe going in chronological order or just kind of a, you know, be a little more free with that. And we did decide to be a little more free because the Beach Boys, they're just, they're so vast and they, there's a chronological order, obviously with their career, but there's just so many other aspects of it. So this podcast is not going to necessarily follow chronological order. I mean, it might in certain areas, but we're going to bounce around. We That's kind of more our style. We want to have a little more, you know, fun, have, have that freedom. Well, I think we decided that, you know, we were going to get into this condensed history and kind of do it pretty linear, linearly. <laughs> and I think that, that that in itself would get a little bit tedious and we might as well just you know, sprinkle in and, and move around and just tell people where we're at. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. More fun. And and, yeah. and specifically, like this episode specifically, this is something that I brought up to Matthew that I really wanted to know about, and, and, and that's Brian's songwriting. I want to know what makes it so great, 
You know, is it, was he just born with it? Did he learn it? Um, you know, what's the big deal with Brian Wilson's music and, and his songwriting and everything? And so let's, let's get into that. So, um, educate me here, Matthew, tell me what's going on with Brian's songwriting, his music, just everything. Why is he so well known for being such a great composer or songwriter, fill in the blank, whatever makes you an amazing musician? Wow. What a long story. Yeah. What a story. <laughs> what a question, right? Um, like where to begin really? No, I know where to begin. Oh, okay. Perfect. That's easy. And you kind of have to rewind and we have to get off Brian for a second because one thing I think is missed in this whole story is what musicians, good musicians, good, great musicians that his parents, Murray and Audrey, both. They were great musicians. Oh, yes. They were, they were really good musicians and, and, uh, were such an influence on Brian's early life and both his parents working with him musically. Um, they famously got him accordion lessons at a very early age, but that didn't last very long. I really believe his, his early education came a lot um, from his folks, Audrey, her piano playing, especially, um, but Murray, a lot of people know that he had some modest success as a songwriter in the 50s. And he famously had a tune that was performed by Lawrence Welk at the time on his show that was a hugely popular thing back then. The song was called Two Step Sidestep. And that was Murray's song? That's Murray's song. And I don't know. I, I need to look up the exacts on dates for when that was. Um, but anyway, I always... I always knew about that tune, and I always knew that Lawrence Welk had done that thing with it, right? And it was a claim to fame of Murray's. Well, um, I'll tell you what. A man named James Murphy put, put out a book about f maybe seven years ago called Becoming the Beach Boys. It's 500-plus uh, pages about just the first two years of the career, but also the childhood leading up to it and where a lot of I found some new information for sure about this. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I, every beach boy fan needs to get it. Even if they can't read through it, it answers a lot of questions. Um, but in that book, it tells a more complete story of Murray's stuff in the fifties. And specifically that song was recorded by, I think three, maybe four different artists. One of them, I was really surprised to find out was a man named a uh, man named Johnny Lee Wills, who is I think the brother of a man named Bob Wills, who started a music called Western Swing in Texas. Who is because of my folk music stuff, I I'm a huge Bob Wills fan, and I had no idea that his I think it's his brother it might be a, a son or a nephew, but I think it's a brother recorded a Murray Wilson song. It was just mind blowing when I found that out a couple of years ago, but. Getting back to Murray and Audrey, we're talking about Murray right now, is he just, he had more success than people think that he did. And he also had made a lot more connections within the industry than people really knew that he had, you know, he had done a lot of work. He's a hard-working, hard-driven man. And besides that, he had musical talent. I mean, some of the compositions that I've heard of Murray's at that time and then even after that, there's some really nice stuff in those things. And and 
So there's Murray, right? Mm. And there's the whole other story about Murray we'll get into, but that's the side of his musicianship. He was a he was a guy that had talent and was already working within the music industry in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Um, Mom, Audrey, was a wonderful singer and was always singing with the boys early on. The earliest tapes um, have her, I, I hear her voice harmonizing with them. Brian famously talks about singing with, mom and make Carl sing with us right now. You know, we had Carl has to sing with us before he can go out and play sort of deal, you know, cause he was only like eight, <laughs> but, um, Audrey taught all those boys, at least a, I think a, a lion's share of what they did on the piano early on, but then she was singing with them, harmonizing with them as Brian was learning. And we'll get into this in a little bit. Uh, the four freshman arrangements. She was one of the people that he was teaching the parts to, so he could get all pe- all four parts in there and hear them all, you know, sung together. Okay, so the four freshmen. What now? Th- so that we're going to you will get into that. We I, are going to get okay. into that, and just after we get done talking about Murray and Audrey, because I think they're just as significant as no. Because I'm as literally anything. yeah. When I'm I'm really ignorant to this, so I'm just trying to follow the timeline here. So the four freshmen is something that Brian ends up doing. That is a, a Sorry, group I'll, that he I'll got into as a as pretty. Early. I'm 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 thinking that he first heard the first records when he was maybe around ten years old or something. I might be wrong on that, but as a teenager, he will get into. Okay, that's okay. what he really studied. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and so and so I I think a big part of Brian's songwriting comes from his parents because they were very talented and they were talented beyond what most people know about them. Right. They're a uh, musical the mom, family. I Audrey mean, yeah. was, it was a really humble lady. And she, she I, I love some of the interviews where she says, Oh, I sometimes get in touch with the fact that I am the mom of the beach boys, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and never talking about herself, you know, it's kind of, she was a, she was a polar opposite personality wise from Murray, as far as, you know, she was definitely the soft side right, and, right. and that, that soft, sweet side that all boy, all the boys carried some of that to some extent for sure. But anyway, that's, you know, they, he started out with some great genetics, I right, think. Yeah, and, and then growing and, up in that. And then of... also, you know, Murray was provided for them. If they, you know, needed the instruments, he made sure that, you know, they had what they needed to, to do. And when Carl started taking up the guitar at, you know, at 11, 12 or something like that, you know, got him a guitar and got him lessons, you know, and, you know, the whole thing was, you know, he was, he was make, he was facilitating an environment for it to happen. Right. So we can start to talk about the four freshmen if you want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's going on there? Well, the four freshmen was a jazz harmony group from the mainly the 50s. And it was really what we call them. It was very close jazz harmony. The the they sung in a very close, almost barbershop quartet style. If you look at it on a music staff, instead of the notes being spread apart, the chord is tightly clustered. And so it really has an, a, you, it, it provides for a lot of sophisticated sophistication in listening to it and also crafting music that way, right? It's okay. a very, so anyway, it's four voices going on. And 
Brian early resonated with the records, famously asked Audrey if he could buy one when they were at a store, and he went into the listening booth and said, well, we got to buy this. Can we get it, please? And he started buying the records. Well, subsequently, he'd come home from school every day, and it reminds me of my fiddle years because I would come home as a teenager every day and just do nothing but music. Uh Um, But he would put on four freshman records, and from what I understand he basically learned their entire catalog. Oh, wow. From all the voices, and he learned it by setting a record needle down. Do you happen to know like how big that catalog is? Oh, it's it's significant. It is. It it's is. And, and I don't know if I, I really need to... I don't know if Brian would say that or not, but I know I know it's significant. It's not just all the hits. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. That's sort of a deal. It's a deep, 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 deep study. It's a deep dive. And the way that you, he had to go about that. And then he's talked about this before. He's a he, record player, set the needle down, listened to the first couple of chords sung, because you got four voices singing chords in harmony, right? Mm-hmm. He'd pick it up after the first two chords, set it down, and figure it out on the piano exactly the way that they, and in what order they were configuring the voices, studying how those chords were being built. And these are sophisticated jazz chords. He's not thinking that in his mind. He's just learning how it's built organically by looking at it on his keyboard and going through an entire body of work like that with that much focus and that much intent is almost an unrivaled musical education. For the mind that endeavors in something like that. I mean, it's just, it was, it's, I got, you know, we need to rewind just a little bit too, because very early on, Brian was in, it was inspired very heavily at an early age by a piece called Rhapsody in Blue. It's a Gershwin piece, a famous, famous piece from the 20s, and it, and that's been so. There's elements of in Brian's songwriting all the time, especially in the Smile period of Rhapsody in Blue. You know, fragments coming through that. But there's always, I mean, when the Beach Boys get going, I mean, it's just it's this wonderful smashing together of this jazz vocal group world with these dense, interesting chords against Chuck Berry. Yeah. And the excitement of early rock and roll and the true king of rock and roll, Chuck Berry, and what he did and for the guitar, what we all still do today in rock and roll is in it and and so, you know, it's been said many times that that in a nutshell is it. It's taken four freshmen putting it against Chuck Berry, especially in the beginning, but in a sense kind of all all the way through, you know, in yeah, different yeah. ways. Um so the, so those what you'd say so that those were kind of the the main influences is that kind of what you're you're saying about no that's how he learned to be a oh, songwriter it's so, how he learned about music theory so it's, separate from an influence then that wouldn't be necessarily no that would be definitely an influence, influence but also the the musical education yes, aspect of it both both okay. to the so then any other nth degree any other musical influences then that that he had oh yeah yeah, yeah. That, that 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 you can kind of see. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Through, now, all those, music. all the fifties doo wop groups. He was he's famously a, a musical omnivore, but he likes he likes um, 
you know, crooners like Rosemary Clooney and, and, you know, you know, old swing and jazz singers. He has an affinity for, uh, he, um, you know, he was a Hoagie Carmichael fan. who's a famous jazz composer, you know, um, Gershwin, of course, but he says the song Rock Around the Clock. Are you familiar with oh, that, yeah. Bill Haley? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I think that came out in 55 or 56, but he talks about that just blew his head off when it came out. You okay. know, he just loved he, If It was good music. He was loving it. The four freshmen thing can't be overstated enough. And I'm thinking I'm trying to think that for a casual fan, how we can make that simpler to to look at. But that's that was basically his education. I know that David Crosby in the Don Was documentary, I Just Wasn't Made for These Times, which was done in 95 or something like that. He was sitting there talking with Graham Nash. They're sitting in New York someplace. And and, and Graham Nash, I think, says, oh, well, how do you write like that? How do you arrange like that? And and David says, well, you, that you, you live at the piano, figuring out four fresh, with that being your main deal in life. And that's all, that's how he, and I, I really can't really agree more. Yeah, because, that, just because of of the nature of the four freshmen. It's music. so complex, yeah, and yeah. if you deconstruct all of that and and yeah. put it all back together using your own family, because you don't, you know, one of the things that they got Brian early on was a tape recorder, so he could record his voice and sing back with you know that was magical stuff in those days. Right, right. Not like today, man, where we have all this stuff that facilitates all the fun things we want to do recording wise, yeah, right? Back you then, know? not the case. Oh at all. man. You know, and even early on, you know, he was to the point of, it was so analog we got to get human beings to do it, you know? Yeah. So mom, uh, Carl, even though you're eight and dad, or sometimes Dennis at that early point, the other thing that in, so we've talked about it a little bit, but Brian's songwriting style and the tricks that he used they em- they embraced new and old things. The new being in the like early on the Chuck Berry stuff, and of course the subject matter. Um, but musically, the things that he did, they're they're the the types of tricks that you learn when you study old traditional jazz or even the pop tunes of the. 20s, 30s, and 40s. What they call you know some of the Tin Pan Alley stuff. Um, that and. Also, the tricks that were used in those four freshman records, as far as key modulation. Yeah, I was just about to ask, what do you mean by tricks? So yeah, that's key mo- modulating, you know, and not not just in obvious spots, but where <laughs> the magic to me as a musician, a lot of it in Brian's music, I found out is because he changes keys sometimes in the middle of. Part, you know, they were, they're not really necessarily analyzed as key changes, but that's what they really are. And a key change really feels like a real shift emotionally, you know. Mm-hmm. It so I really, and, and it, the um, that stuff is through all the catalog, even the early catalog in different ways, you know. But then it's really, you know, get to pet sounds and it's really happening in a huge way, affecting a lot of those tunes in a in a huge way. But... So that, that, and then yeah, basically just those old jazz tricks, you know, it, 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 so I, this is where we, where we should have a big star in the episode is where I really feel like the reason Brian is so impactful to the pop and rock and roll world, music world 
in America is he really was the first guy to bring jazz into rock and roll. And he integrated it in an, in an amazing way. And he didn't even really know he was doing it. You ask him about jazz, go, I don't play jazz. I don't, you know, well, he studied jazz harmony for years as a teenager and, and was in love with it. Even if me, he might not have called it studying jazz harmony at that point. Right. right, He just loved the four freshmen. He loved the sounds of their voices and what they were doing. I don't think when he was young, he didn't even think about the complexity of the chord so much as maybe how how it made him feel. Sure. Same yeah. way his music did with me as a very as a very um young young person. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Just so just hits you. It just hit him differently, and just like it hit you differently. Or it's, mm-hmm. it's it's not. Yeah. It's not just like another another song that you heard. It, it had different it evoked a different you know response right and and i think you know compared to a lot of the other music i was listening at the time and when i was i was born in 1969 so this would have been the early 70s when i'm listening to my mom's old records which are only like not even 10 years old at that time right, i'm right, thinking yeah. this is so weird the the fact that the other music i was listening to some of it was really amazing too like for instance paul simon i mean just still just a huge nut dad my dad and i got to go up and see paul and brian on tour together up at the gorge oh nice in great washington venue, great artist yeah yeah, that yeah, a yeah, good yeah. Time. it yeah. was an amazing show it was really really good but um i knew that especially as i was listening to a lot of the other pop records my my folks had or eh, the folk stuff too that there was just something so sophisticated going on in brian's mute something so different something so special that i didn't know what it was i just knew it was i knew it was that that introduction to california girls is still just going to be it's the big bang moment of my life right right is what that is is just a, a listening to that progression of chords and what what all those different instruments do to those chords as we just progress through that opening of that tune is just like the, just one of the most masterful paintings I've ever seen. You know, it's just so brilliant. And I don't know if that helps other people appreciate it or not, but well, maybe they'll listen to it, you know, with a different perspective than they have in the past. Brian, when uh, I remember when pet sounds was uh, re re-released on cd in the early 90s and they one of the things that they asked him is do you have any suggestions for every anybody listening to the album he goes yeah listen to it on headphones in the dark yeah yeah you know um the other thing we wanted other early influences i want to go back to chuck berry because it was a huge influence on carl and his guitar playing early on but chuck berry's Chuck Berry's tunes resonated with Brian and Mike both early on too, way before they were in the, you know, in the late fifties when they were happening, it was a big influence on Brian. Um, and lots of other people from that era. Um, but the doo wop stuff that they, you know, that they ended up emulating on some of their early records. Brian was, was into all that. And Mike was especially into that. And that's some, they've got a lot of early records where you can definitely hear that, that influence heavy duty. Sure. Um, You know, the, the difficult, 
the difficult keys. I also, when I started playing guitar pretty heavy, like about six, seven, eight years old, right in there. Um, I remember trying to, you know, I would put on records and play along with them. And when I put on the Kingston trio, I had a pretty easy time of it, you know, and even I uh, put on a Neil Diamond record. I was able to play uh, some of those tunes pretty, but you know, I put on <laughs> side two of summer days and tried to play California. I just knew it's like, I can't even figure this out. I yeah. need help, you know, or I remember early on my dad and mom getting me a songbook. It w- it had the cover of 15 big ones on it, but it wasn't the songs of 15 big ones. It was just kind of like a greatest hits thing. And it had the, it looked like it was all the official published music. It said Irving and Guild music and stuff on the bottom of it. But all of the tunes were in the wrong keys. I knew they weren't on the same keys that on the record, but I remember especially California girls. I, I got like into it two measures after the, after the introduction. And I remember being so upset and I went and told dad that this thing isn't even close to right. You know, this is, this isn't going to teach me how to really play California girls yeah. because it doesn't, you know, it was, I, it's hard to explain that. You, yeah, yeah. I mean, just knowing that it's not, the, it's not the same for most, it might've worked for a lot of people, yeah, but not, but yeah, man, not, not for you. Was, you weren't having uh, it. Uh, 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 you know, and musically, uh, in a later deal, we're going to talk about what happens in the second chord change in the bridge of California girls that right there it's, it's California girls. Wouldn't it be nice and uh good vibrations all in one chord change. And it had happened previous to that too. But it it it's it's a moment that could be analyzed from a musical perspective that really is going, wow, yeah, I didn't know that that point of the verse of California Girls was that uh, complex you know, p- or pivotal or, or yeah, you know, yeah. like it can be interpreted so many ways, so many ways that whoever wrote that book, I see where they got the idea that they came up with for that chord changer. You know, I don't want to get into it deep right now, but it was wrong. Yeah. It wasn't, yeah. It wasn't wasn't the actual, what was actually going on. No, no. Even, you know, when we're talking about the key changes being one of the tricks and, and so, so modulating to a, a difficult key or even writing whole songs in difficult keys. So when you say modulate, does that just mean change? You change, change change keys. Yeah. So you change the system with which you're working. It's not, it's the same system. You just move it into a different key. key, Right. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, he, even the earliest tune, which it wasn't the earliest recorded officially. Um, but it's, it's surfer girl is considered, to be Brian's first tune that he wrote. And I believe on the earliest versions of it, even there's a, there's a half step modulation in the end of it from the original key of D to E flat. Okay. You know, that (laughs) for a 14 year old kid playing the guitar and, uh, you know, a bass player and, you know, guys that are just kind of from, uh, somebody who's been teaching guitar for a while that, that, 
even that little move is a it's is a big impressive. one. Yeah, impressive right? for someone at that age. Yeah, it, but just and writing a tune with that kind of sophistication right out of the gate. Yeah, and that's not just the modulation in Surfer Girl is not the only thing of note. And you know the the way he alters the doo wop progression in in the body of the tune is 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 really part of the beauty of it and why it's lasted so long. We talk about the songwriting. And I guess it's almost like we're kind of in the early part of his songwriting. But if you just take a listen from the albums from 1962 to 65, the studio albums, let's say Surf and Safari, Surf in USA, Surf for Girl, Little Deuce Coop, Shut Down Volume 2, All Summer Long, Side 1 of the Christmas album, and not the concert album because that's all stuff, you know. But then Today and Summer Days from 65, that's three that's a three year span. Listen to that first album, Surf and Safari, front to back, and then listen to the Beach Boys today through summer days front to back. And you try to tell me that there isn't something just absolutely insane going on as far as a level of growth and maturity. Of growth. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's and what I was everything wondering. is just like I mean the manic uh, expression and the and the rate at which he created not just for the Beach Boys but other people during that time all kinds of people Jan and Dean, his wife and sisters the Honeys uh, just to name a couple of very many people he worked with outside of the Beach Boys even during this period so the the story of him you know, that that was his time mm-hmm. yeah no that's that is. A lot of music to put out in a three-year span. Yeah, but and you listen to the difference between, between Surf and yeah. Safari, and and so what's the, and so he's at Surf and Safari. How old is he there? Oh, he's let's see, sixty-two. So he's right at twenty. Twenty. Yeah. And three years later, and just yeah, a ton of growth in that time. Yeah, I mean, I need to do that apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but. I'm sure that we'll get into other aspects of the songwriting. I, yeah, the original yeah. question being, you know, what there's yeah, sticking on Brian's songwriting specifically, and and if and if you have, you know, yeah, like you said, we kind of have been focused on the earlier stuff, you know, but I mean, he continues continued to continue to write and write and write. Oh know? yeah, and and went through different phases in his songwriting where he he. You know, different songwriting styles. As a matter of fact, that brings to mind this. This is one of the most, this is the most brilliant book written on Brian's songwriting, Philip Lambert's book. And this is not the only book that he's, but he's a music theory And it's Inside the Music of Brian Wilson is the title. Yes. Songs, Sounds, and Influences of the Beach Boys' Founding Genius. Yes. And it's, if you're a musician... This is especially because because there's a lot of details about musician knowledge and stuff like that that only going to interest you if you know things about that. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that I, book it, would it, probably not interest me all that much. I, you know, I, I, I love the style. Okay. You know, I think that there would be parts of it. It's not. It's it's not yeah, all that quick. type of analysis. Um, but it's it's just a great book. Yeah, maybe not actually. I see that it's you know it is kind of you could you could fast forward past the stuff that you don't understand if you you know if you really yes, want to know yeah so. yeah 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 it's it 
it's just that's one thing I want people to seek out if they really want to understand some of the deep stuff. Deep, deep, mm-hmm. uh, deep, the depths of his songwriting, mm-hmm. right? Right, right, right. And the you know the last thing I want to say in in the this episode about his songwriting is Carl in one of the last documentaries that was done, obviously before he passed away. He talks about he and Brian. Oh, sometimes probably sometime probably in the late eighties or something like that. They were on a Beach Boys retreat or something where they actually had to room together for a while. Because believe it or not, in Beach Boy world, even when you're brothers, you you don't spend that much time around each other. Right. You know when you know in the later years. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So anyway, I think they were sharing a room or something like that, and I think Carl asked Brian, "Why do you think?" the music succeeded on a level that it did, or why did we or anything? And Brian's answer is, I think that it was a pure, like just a a real simple expression of joy that was real direct. And so the the resonance didn't really depend on you being a musician or not, I think is one of the points of that. Yeah, I mean, as you and I sit here and talk, I mean, that's, kind of proof right there, you know, of right, that. right. And, and I think that no matter how much I wax poetically about how genius everything he, he did was, we have to realize that it resonated with a lot larger art audience than just a, a musically educated audience. Yeah, and, and so that, I think that is, I think that point alone is profound that there is, you know, a ne- not necessarily a musician's ear listening, but still loving it. And then a musician's ear can listen and also just love it, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the earliest examples, Catch a Wave from the Surfer Girl album. It's one of their still, it wasn't a hit. It was, I think it was, it wasn't even released as a single or anything like that, but it was, it's an album on the album and it's always been a real crowd pleaser. But to me, the chord changes, there's some of the beginnings of punk rock in there. And nobody would, you know, there's just some really interesting things in even the early music that's going on that the listener does has no idea of the complexity of it. As a matter of fact, it's pretty surface, you know, it's bubblegum pop. Right, right. You know, but... Is that the genius of it? That he wove into it all this musical complexity, even from the beginning, and made it sound simple. So he made it accessible. Yeah, that's that is pretty awesome for sure. To to be able, yeah, the accessibility of it, and not just from a musician a musician's ear to a non musician's ear, but from you know generational as well. I mean, like you said, if, yeah, this sixtieth year anniversary, you can count on a couple of fingers how many bands can can have that. Yeah, but you know, all through their career, they're they're just rediscovered by a younger audience and it's and we talk about how a lot of music from the you know the Beatles and the Stones and the Beach Boys and all of you know we can't mention everybody here but I mean a lot of that stuff is taken out of time because it's so good that that everybody resonates with it no matter what no matter what yeah exactly yeah it's yeah. pretty sweet yeah, it's pretty cool so then that's pretty much it then for for this episode uh if you enjoyed this please give us a five star rating if you didn't, you can just not listen and, and you don't have to give us any bad ratings. So uh, that stuff really is is important in this in these first episodes to get some traction. So if you enjoyed this, please do review and we will see you next time. 
yeah, remember the smile you send out returns to you.